uh, to Exodus chapter uh, 23. Uh, Exodus 23. And I'm going to ask, if you are able, would you please stand as we read God's Word together? We'll read verses uh, 10 to 19. Let's stand as we read God's Word. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what you leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the sun of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let, let it be heard on your lips. Three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my, sac of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Now I know, um, I know, I know you know better than this. Uh, and I know that you are not in danger of this at all. However, uh, there is, I think, a common misconception. Misperception? Is that a word? Can you misperceive? Let's do that. Misperception. If that's not a word, it is now. It should be. Um, honestly, among, among some groups of Christians, and certainly outside of the church... That, that somehow God, who is eternal and unchangeable, changes. Uh, he changes in uh, that blank piece of paper uh, between Malachi and Matthew. When you turn from the Old Testament, that's, that's the, God of, the, the, the God of difficulty. The God of rules. The God of regulations. The God of demands. The, the, um, the you're not allowed to have fun... Um, law-giving ogre of a God who um, gives all of these laws and, and even, even in Exodus, we're not even in Leviticus. We're in Exodus, right? Imagine Leviticus. It's worse. You, you start thinking worse things when you read Leviticus. But, but in Exodus, even in Exodus, we've read laws that make us scratch our heads and, and wonder and perhaps even think to ourselves, or we, we could think that God's just a... A difficult, everything's about law, and I've got to jump through all these hoops, and it's just so. But then Matthew comes, and we feel, I mean, like, you literally, you're reading through the Bible in a year, right? You get to the end of Malachi, you turn that blank piece of paper, you get to Matthew, and you can feel yourself go, ah, 
Here's the grace I've been looking for. I'm tired of all the law and the difficulty and the angry God who wants to put people to death. I want the relaxing grace, mercy God of the New Testament. That's the perception. And even if we're honest with ourselves, we feel it too many times. But the reality is, even this passage, if that's our understanding of who God is, we're not even reading the Old Testament right. Because this passage tells us, I mean, just these 10 verses alone tell us something vastly different about God than the law-giving, demanding, oppressive ogre of a God. We're uh, concluding the book of the covenant. We're, we're coming to the end. We're at the end of the case laws of the Ten Commandments. We've been, uh, God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And then from the end of 20 until now, um, he's basically been applying those case laws to daily life in Israel. And, and we've noticed how the, the, the commandments sort of intertwine and intermix with each other. And, and he doesn't simply go, well, let me unpack the first and then I'll unpack the second and then I'll apply the third. It's, they all end up together and connected. Except I do want to make this observation. The book of the covenant began with the first two commandments. You can go back later today and just go back up to right after the Ten Commandments and, and look back at the end of, of Exodus 20, and you can see that God started His application of the Ten Commandments. The case laws of the Ten Commandments started with the First and Second Commandment. And in, at the end of it, we come back to really the first through the fourth, primarily the Fourth Commandment. Now, I think in many ways... Um, when it comes down to it, you can talk about some of the Ten Commandments in certain parts of the world and people will say, well, yeah. Like, n nobody really, to speak a little bit hyperbole, I guess, nobody really has a problem with saying that murder is wrong. We all kind of get that. Nobody really, I mean, we understand at least, now we'll hem and haw about how not to lie or how to lie or how to lie well, but we all understand that at some level lying is wrong. Adultery is wrong. The 10th commandment, 9th and 10th, I maybe kind of where things get a little fuzzy. And we even, even among, among non-Christians, would understand, okay, at least God has the right, the first commandment, he has the right to claim exclusivity. The place where we, even as believers, have the hardest time is with the second and the fourth commandments. We want to worship God according to our own really cool, latest, greatest, newfangled, newly come up with, creative ideas. And when it comes down to it, I don't really want God to tell me what I can do and can't do during the week. I want to control my calendar. And it's really kind of mean of him to tell me that, that one-seventh of my week I have to give to him. Those are the two places I think that we as Christians have the, the most difficult 
time with the Ten Commandments. This with the second and the fourth. Right where God began and it begins and ends the book of the covenant. Right where God begins and ends this application of the Ten Commandments. Notice, even right here in verse 12, we're told uh, that God gives us a day of rest. God gives rest to His people. Verse 12, we have six days. Six days of, of you doing the things you need to do. Six days of you doing your work. The six days of you going to your job and, and doing the things that you need to do and working around the house and doing work at the house and doing the yard work and making sure those things get done. You have, you have six days when you do the things you need to do. And yet, there's one day in every week that God says to stop. One day in every week when God says, take a break. Now, to our sinful mind, that sounds demanding. To, to, the, to the sinful mind, that sounds unfair and demand. Like, but, but, but. And we come up with all sorts of excuses and, and uh, complaints against the, se- the fourth commandment. This seventh day of rest. But pay attention to the verse. Read, make sure you read it and read it well. Our calendar reflects six days of work and one day of rest. Now, I'm not going to go back and re-preach the fourth commandment. That's on our website. You can go find it. You can go listen. You can go hear what you need to hear there. There, unpacked sort of the fourth commandment and made application of it to our lives and all that sort of thing. The emphasis here is on resting from our daily labors. But listen to the way the verse reads. But on the seventh day, you shall rest. Why? That your ox and your donkey might have a rest. That the son of your servant woman might be refreshed. That the stranger, the alien, might be refreshed um we're creatures we get tired we grow weak we we overdo it and we hurt ourselves we overdo it and and because we sort of stretch ourselves thin we get sick because we go too hard our body our muscles they ache that's not a product of the fall that's just a creature issue right don't assume that that tiredness is a sinful condition and that's just the nature of being a creature and not a creator right we're not god he he doesn't get tired but we do we get injured. We need rest. God modeled this rest in Genesis 2, not because he was tired, not because, not because day one wore him out with let there be light. Hey, I, can, I can picture him now sweating, laying back in his lazy book. I'm just worn out from saying let there be light. God didn't need the rest. 
He modeled the rest. He modeled a weekly calendar that you and I are supposed to follow. But notice the focus of verse 12. It's the very people that were most likely to be exploited and marginalized in the previous passage. Strangers, the son of the servant, animals. That's not an ogre, oppressive, demanding God. That's a generous God who's saying, look, here's the deal. I'm going to give you a day on which your job is to rest. To physically recover from the rest of the week. The the weak and endangered specifically are mentioned in verse 12. They're the ones protected. You take the day off. Why? So that the things that work for you and the people that work for you, the animals that work for you can have a break. So that they can have a rest. Here's the one connection that I'll make to the fourth commandment sermon from ages ago. Um, I don't have an ox. I don't have a donkey. I don't have a servant. The question isn't, the question is, what did they do? What was their job? Who, how does this going to apply to me? How does this work for me? Well, I don't have a donkey, but I have a dog. So maybe I should give my dog the day off. His life is a day off. (laughs) They weren't pets. They were lawn care equipment. They were farming equipment. They were how you plowed your field. They were how you harvested your grain. They were the ones out doing the work. So the reality is maybe we should be asking the question, okay, well, how does this work for me? Well, maybe my lawn equipment needs a day of rest. Maybe my dishwasher needs a day of rest. Maybe... Those are the ways that we would apply the fourth commandment into sort of 21st century parallel. God's so mean, so oppressive, so demanding, He gives you 52 holidays a year. My boss, I can't get a week off. I can't get any time off. He's working me too hard and I I really need to be gone here and he won't let me. God gives you 52 holidays every year. But it gets better because then he also gives you a septennial rest. You just learned a new word. So there's a park in Columbia, South Carolina, where I grew up. The locals call it Sesqui. Right? That's just the name is Sesqui. The full name is Sesquicentennial State Park. Okay, the confused look. It was it was built, created, established in the hundred and fiftieth year of Columbia's incorporation. Sesquicentennial is one hundred and fifty years. God not only gives you. One day in seven, but then he gives you one year every seven years of rest, a septennial rest. There's your new word for the day. And in that verse 10, in that seventh year, you let your field alone. Why? 
so that so that you can suffer, so that you cannot eat, so that you can go hungry for 365 days? No, so that you can learn to trust him to provide for you and so that the poor can gather whatever there is in the field. The beasts of the field may gather whatever the poor don't gather. God gives your field a rest every seven years so that the poor, the needy, and his creation, the beasts of the field, might be provided for in a a particular and special kind of way. God is providing rest for his people and for his creation. There's your oppressive, difficult, demanding God. I'll be honest with you. I think the fourth commandment is my favorite, quite honestly. I mean, there's one day when the thought of, I need to, tomorrow. Oh, but I've got to, I can do that later. When you tell your kids, you know what, here's the day you don't make your bed. Here's the day you don't do your homework. You, you, everything orbits around the Lord's day, it orbits around this day of rest. It kind of sounds like the best day of the week to me. And we somehow make it this difficult, oppressive God because he gives rest to his people. But God also gives his people cause for rejoicing. Did you notice verse 14? There are three uh, festivals Three celebrations. Festivals are a big deal uh, in our world today, right? There's music festivals all over the place. And you get to go and camp out a la Woodstock-esque kinds of stuff for two, three, four nights, whatever it is, and and listen to music festivals. There's three annual feasts that God gives to his people and commands us to celebrate them together and with him. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You, you do remember Exodus 12. I know it's been months and months since we were in Exodus 12. But in Exodus 12, God finally, after the, the death of the firstborn, um, there's that final tenth plague And God is bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt, out of bondage there in Egypt. And he he told his people, look, here's the deal. Uh, You're going to slaughter a lamb. You're going to paint its blood on the doorposts. And every household that's covered by the blood of the lamb, uh, I will deliver from bondage. That that should sound like Jesus to you. Um, and you're also going to eat this meal, but you, and you're going to eat it with this bread, this unleavened bread, because we don't have time for to wait for the bread to rise. I mean, literally, your cloak, your belt, your staff, you are eating ready to go at a moment's notice. God's bringing His people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt, and they are eating ready to leave. And that feast, they're supposed to celebrate every single year in the month of Abib. Read through the Bible with your kids. That's their favorite month of the year. Like my kids still will joke about the month of Abib. It was the, the beginning of 
the calendar for them. That was the, the month in which they were brought out of Egypt. It celebrates God's saving grace. How's that for a difficult, oppressive God? Here, I'm going to give you a week every single year where you have to celebrate a festival and feast together celebrating my grace to you, my deliverance for you, of you. That was the, the springtime sort of festival that reminds us that God is a warrior and he delivers his people and defeats his enemies and we are to they celebrate Israel celebrated that deliverance in this festival this feast of unleavened bread there's a second festival a second feast early summer um, that's the feast of harvest it's the first fruits it's when it's when your crop begins to grow and you get to go out and go hey look we can finally grab some grapes off the vineyard. We can finally grab some grain out of the field. And you bring that grain as an offering to God because He's beginning to provide for you. The first, the best, that's what they, we are to give to God. And so there's this week-long celebration of, of God granting His people their harvest. I don't know, maybe it sounds like sort of bad business sense to take a week off to celebrate a harvest that's only barely begun. But if that isn't evidence of trusting Him to provide for His people, if that isn't, isn't a celebration of God's goodness and grace to us, because you're carrying this first sheaf of grain to offer, to wave before Him, to give to Him as an offering. And now you're humming, bringing in the sheaves. The, the first portion, the first tenth of, of everything belonged to God. And so they were literally taking the first and giving it to Him right off the bat, right off the top. Celebrating His goodness and His mercy in their lives. As a third festival, it's the, fe the festival feast of end gathering, which is the end of the harvest. Now you're done. Now you've gotten everything. Now you've brought it all in. And now you're celebrating that God has seen that provision through to the end. This is the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. You live in a tent out in uh, the field for a week. Um, Celebrating, again, God's faithfulness to us. And you can go to Leviticus 23 and, and read more about the, the Feast of Booths, living in, in these tents, these little mini tabernacles, and doing so so that every generation will know that, that God made Israel to dwell in tents while they were being delivered from Egypt to the Promised Land. Boiling a young goat in its milk is a, connected to a pagan ritual. It seems that some pagan practice was to literally actually cook a young goat in its mother's milk. That which, and God forbids it because that which is supposed to give it life becomes the place where it dies. That's backwards according to God's economy. 
So we have these three festivals, these three feasts that we celebrate together, that Israel celebrated together every single year, marking these these moments of God's grace and faithfulness to his people. Feast of unleavened bread because he brought us out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. The feast of, of harvest because he's the first fruits of what we have, the first fruits of our labor belong to him and he is providing for us. The feast of booths or tabernacles because we actually lived in tents for a while while we were traveling from Egypt to the promised land. Those of you doing your, um, if you're if you're still doing the the read through the Bible in a year thing, unless you're doing one of those everywhere reading plans like like uh, Dr. Kelly has in the back of his book, if God already knows why I pray, or maybe the the Robert Murray McShane. Um, if you've got something bouncing you around, you may be in a different place, um, uh, but you're somewhere in Leviticus or Numbers, um, and so maybe it's a, a little late to to point this out to you. Um, but I wonder if you, as you read, could pay attention to how many days the Israelites were told not to work. You know, that's the thing we complain about the most. I have to work too hard. I can't get enough days off. I can't get time off. I can't get a break. I can't. And God, who we said, the God of the Old Testament, who we say is the difficult, oppressive God, is actually giving his people regular days of rest and regular times of rejoicing. Lastly, let me make this one, this connection sort of clear for you. All of these feasts, all of these festivals, All the Sabbath rest points to Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the one that said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you more stuff to do. And I will give you a longer list to keep up with. I will give you a a treadmill that goes faster and steeper than the one you're already running on. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our celebration. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, Jesus says to us. Gentle and lowly of heart, come to me, you'll find rest for your weary souls. The reality is, the Lord's Supper is a feast that celebrates God's grace in our lives. His act of delivering us from bondage and slavery to sin. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb of the feast of the unleavened bread. And, and you know, the New Testament uses leaven as an image for sin, right? And so this bread, this unleavened bread, not only is a picture of, of speed, of hurry, of we don't have time to wait, but also that we would root out sin in our lives and that Christ would come as our sacrifice to remove the leaven of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter you and I know as the resurrection chapter, actually uses first fruits language to talk about Jesus. 
The first fruits of those raised from the dead. You know what that means? There's no such thing as first without second. the, The word first doesn't exist unless there's more to come. Otherwise, it's just the fruits. Right? If Jesus is the first fruits of those raised from the dead, there has to be more. That's your hope. That's your confidence. That's your expectation. You are the second. You are the rest of the fruits. We get that celebration together. I have to tell the story. I've told it before. It's been long enough that enough of you haven't heard it. I actually got to tell it a few years back in the very church where this conversation happened. I'm in the kitchen. First Presbyterian Church, Dillon, South Carolina. 20-something years ago. Four or five years ago. Bill McNeil and Bill Huggins are having a conversation in the kitchen. Bill Huggins asked Bill McNeil, the, the cemetery in Dillon was building a mausoleum. That's the, that's the building where the, you bury in the wall. They were building one. Bill Huggins asked Bill McNeil, uh, are you going to get one of those? Bill McNeil with almost, if you knew Bill, you understood. Um, with almost, almost a little bit incredulous. Almost a little bit dismissed. Almost like, how dare you ask me that question? said, oh no. Like, border, again, the Bills, they knew each other. They long time friends. You know, they're both in their 70s, 80s at the time they were asking this question. Um, I want my body to get the full experience of coming up out of that grave. I want the dirt Falling off of my face. I want the whole experience of coming up out of the ground to meet Jesus when he comes back to get me. That's a man who understood if Jesus is the first fruits of those raised from the dead, I get to be next. I get to be part of the rest of the fruit. The Feast of Harvest was Pentecost in Greek. That's, that's, you remember Pentecost, Acts 2, the day the Spirit was given to the, the church uh, in this new and sort of particular and special way, 50 days after Passover. The Father, the Son, the, the risen, ascended Son with the Father send the Spirit to the church. To bring in the harvest of the souls who would look in faith to Christ. That work continues today. The Feast of Ingathering, it was there that John in John 7 said, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Spirit whom we receive when we look in faith to Christ. This passage is anything but a demanding, ogre, difficult, oppressive, law-giving rules. You've got to say it with the growl in your voice, otherwise it doesn't sound 
harsh enough. That's not the God portrayed in this passage. The God portrayed in this passage, A, gives you regular 52 holidays a year plus other days to celebrate and feast. That's what He was giving to His people. Why? Because He's the God who saves. And we have days and feasts and events that celebrate God's grace and mercy to His people. God gives His Spirit rest and God gives His people... I mean, God gives His people rest and He gives His people rejoicing in Christ. May He do so even more this very day. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You that You are a God of grace and mercy, a a God of deliverance, a God of of redemption, a a warrior who fights for His people and has defeated your and our enemies that we might be set free from slavery to sin. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that these festivals of the Old Testament look to the day when uh, You would be their Savior. That we, like them, are saved exactly the same way. Looking to you, looking to the promised Messiah, the first fruits of those raised from the dead, would you give us eyes to see that day coming? And we pray that we would celebrate the days of rest and rejoicing that you've given to us, to your honor and your glory, that they might be sweet to us as we rest from our labors. And rejoice in you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.